Let's again go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father God, we have so many needs. Um, and we lift them up to you because you hear us. You are the God who exists. You are who you are, the one who is and who was and who is to come. We can trust in you. And Father, on this uh, Father's Day, we come to you as our Father who gives good gifts to his children. We pray for those whose fathers are missing through death or through choices that they have made or choices that have happened to them. We pray that you comfort them. Pray that they would look to you who never lets us down, either because of imperfection or inability or weakness or death. And we pray, Father, for those who are fathers or are being called to be fathers, that you would make them into men by your Spirit who imitate your good qualities and so provide a model of godliness. Father, we pray for the World Changers team that is in Cleveland this week to serve in your name. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray for many fruitful gospel conversations. We pray for the churches of our region to be built up and supported through their work. And Father, we pray for the nation of Iceland this morning and ask, Father, that um, there would be a revival of Christianity there, that the the, the dullness of cultural Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, would be overthrown by your spirit, a spiritual Christianity that seeks you in spirit and in truth. We are thankful for the young leaders that you have risen up there, Father. We thank you that you are sending them all over the world, but we pray that there would be such an outcry for your spirit in Iceland that they would have no choice but to stay and we pray for gospel fruit there, even as we pray for gospel fruit here in Cleveland. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in a uh, series of the book of Titus in the New Testament. So if you want to turn there, we're in chapter 2 this morning. And just a quick reminder, there are some cards on the back table by the entrance if you want to know what uh, passages we're going to be looking at in upcoming weeks. Uh, but we are in Titus this morning, and you can turn, click, swipe, tap, do what you do to get to Titus chapter 2. We look at the first 10 verses, and uh, we'll dig in. Um, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." In one of his books, I, I honestly forget uh, which one, uh, but preeminent uh, New Testament scholar Don Carson relates a story of his from his college days um, where he, takes, he talks about a couple students that he knew that wanted to, uh, that he wanted them to be persuaded to follow Jesus and to receive the good news that Jesus died on a cross for sin so that sinners like you and me can be forgiven and set right with God. 
And as he relates the story, there's a graduate student in the campus ministry who was well known to have really good answers for inquiring minds about Christianity. And so Carson took these classmates to meet the grad student. And upon meeting the undergraduates, the grad students asked what, what they'd like to understand about Christianity. And, and he quickly deduced that one of them simply wanted evidence or arguments for this or that. And, and he suggested that there were many places he could get that information if he wanted it. But the other student had a different question. That student wanted to know why Christianity mattered. What difference does it make? Is there any value in being a Christian as opposed to something else, an atheist, an agnostic, a, a Hindu? The grad student thought this to be a question that he was better positioned to help with. And so the grad student gave an invitation. Come live with me for a week or two and see for yourself what difference it makes. That's throwing down the gauntlet, isn't it? If someone asked you, what difference does Christianity make? Could you, would you say, come live with me and see for yourself what difference it makes? Although that story must be at least 50 years old now, I, I think Americans and Canadians like Don Carson are, are still trying to ask the same question, aren't they? What difference does it make if I'm a Christian? Now, there is a sense in which it doesn't make a difference if it makes a difference. If it's true, it's true. Uh, that's the conclusion I came to as a young man, that if, if Christianity was true, I'd be a fool not to order my life around it. It wasn't about what difference it made in my life. It was about truth. Uh, for 99% of the population, whether they believe the earth is flat or they believe the earth is a globe will not impact their daily routines. But I think most of it, most of us agree that it's better to believe that the earth is a globe for no other reason than the fact that it's true. And it's good to order your life around truth. Nobody's offended, right? We're, we're still all here. But I think we also understand that if something is claiming to be an answer, the answer, to what life is all about, to our significance. And if that thing was claiming that it had power to change, well, then that thing should change people. It should make a difference. And our passage this morning speaks to that issue. On one hand, we could say the theme of this passage, the main idea is that gospel leaders cultivate gospel lives. In other words, the kind of leaders that Paul describes in chapter 1 that we looked at the last two weeks should help other Christians to live distinctively Christian lives. And if I were preaching to a room of pastors, that might be my tact. But Paul spends a tremendous amount of time detailing just what those distinctively Christian lives look like. And that record is left there for us, for all of us, not just pastors. And it stands as a testimony to the kinds of lives that we, that is, Christians, should lead. They're the kinds of lives that when a non-Christian asks, what difference does it make? They allow us to say, come and see. So I think there's another main idea that runs parallel to this idea that gospel leaders cultivate gospel lives. And it's this, and that Christians are called to live distinctive lives that are shaped by the gospel. And I think we go a little further than that, but I'm going to hold that as we unpack the passage which breaks down into an introductory instruction to Titus, followed by an examination of what these distinctive lives look like among five different groups of people. And fair warning, there's, there's five groups here. There's a lot of words to unpack. My notes are a little bit long. I'm just prepping you ahead of time. I've tried to pare back. I will try to self-edit as I go, but I'm just I'm giving you that fair warning. Uh, that I might be a little long this morning. Our, our passage begins with an abrupt transition. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that word you is emphatic. Paul is trying to get Titus' attention here as if to say, now listen here, Titus, you are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Remember, Paul had just finished reminding Titus that he needs to identify and appoint pastors shepherds, elders in each church on the island of Crete. And the key reason for that was the number of false teachers who were endangering the spiritual lives of the local Christians with their 
perverse and incorrect doctrines. And so chapter 2 is set as a contrast. Titus isn't supposed to be like that. Titus needs to stand firm on the truth of the gospel, not waver from it. And he needs to promote this gospel to his hearers as, as sort of a prophylactic against Christians being led astray by false teaching. I'm going to quibble just a bit with the translation here because the word, it really isn't teach. The word is speak. And I think some translations take speaking in the context of a church leader like Titus and interpret that to mean teaching. But a very literal translation is, but as for you, speak the things that accord with sound doctrine. That includes public teaching, of course, but more than all of Titus's words should be in accord with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, or healthy teaching, is the reliable, trustworthy Christian message passed from Jesus to his apostles to the churches. And when Paul says that Titus should speak what accords with this teaching, he doesn't only mean, or even primarily mean, that Titus just needs to say true things about God. He doesn't mean less than that. But he does mean something more because everything that follows in this passage has to do with character and ethics. It's not so much concerned with right doctrine, right beliefs, as it is with right living, right behavior. There's a connection between the two. In Paul's mind, the right beliefs about God should lead us in a certain direction with our attitudes and our actions. God is a God of truth. He never lies. He always keeps his word. So Christians are supposed to be truth-tellers, honest, promise keepers. More than that, consider the reasons why the world lies. We are often driven to lie because we are ashamed of what others will think of us. And we embellish to make ourselves more presentable. But the good news is that Jesus has removed our guilt and our shame. And so in him, we are fully accepted before God. We have no more reason to hide. Therefore, we can and ought to live lives in light of the truth. And so the doctrine that we believe, the, the, the propositions that we believe about God, should lead to certain actions and attitudes that maybe are a little bit strange in this world. So what kind of speaking accords with sound, sound doctrine? Well, for sure, Titus's words should be holy and, and kind and, and uplifting and designed for encouragement and edification. Uh, they should include the hope of the gospel for unbelievers. And they should be the kinds of words that motivate and push other Christians to live the lives that are pleasing to God, that are changed by the gospel. We've said this before, it's, and it's going to become a recurring theme in this little book. There are no super-Christians. The best church leaders are just those Christians who do the ordinary things of the Christian life well. So what Paul said to Titus, he may as well be saying to us, our speaking, in all of its forms, should be aligned with sound doctrine. Now, we, we all fall short of that. I mean, just this week, I got short-tempered with my family. I'm not sure I said anything untrue, I, I, but I don't recall everything I said. But I'm sure the way I said it did not accord with sound doctrine. In my anger, I was, I was harsh, even unkind. And, and it's very difficult for speech like that to push anyone toward Christ-likeness. But that's our call. Like Titus, our speaking will impact the people we come into contact with. And so the question really is whether or not we will make the most of our speech for the sake of others. In Titus's case, Paul takes him through five groups of people he will undoubtedly deal with and, and how he might use his speech to help encourage gospel fruit in their lives. And it's a reminder to us that each person or group that we encounter might have slightly different needs. But we can still use our words to build them up. So let's take a look at each of those groups. First, we have the old men. 
But as we look at each of these groups, I want to highlight something, because whether we're talking about the old men, old women, young women, young men, or slaves, there are certain key words and ideas that keep popping up all over this passage. It's difficult to translate those words always the same way in every sense, and so sometimes it gets obscured a little bit in English. There's at least nine different key ideas that are repeated in this short passage, some as many as four times. And, and it points to uh, the fact that there's a lot of overlap between these groups, more than might be obvious out of quick reading in English. That makes sense, though. They're all Christians. And so they all need to grow and, and grow up in their faith in similar ways. But sometimes the exact application for this group or that person might be a little bit different, which is why Paul singles out each of these groups. But the repetition of key ideas reminds us that we all stand before God the same. Now, the first group is the older men, or really it's old men. Uh, and probably Paul doesn't have a, a hard cutoff here of what counts as old and young, but we do have a pretty good idea that about that time, someone might have been considered old at about age 40 or maybe age 50, depending on who you were talking to. Talking to. And uh, before that, you'd be considered young. It was just, that would be the cutoff. So there are certain schools of ancient Greek thought that I prefer to agree with, and others I I'm less inclined to agree with based on my age between those dates. But um, remember that life expectancy at that time was probably in the early to mid-30s. And that included a lot of infant and childhood mortality, but it meant that the number of people making it to 40 or to 50 was relatively small. Now, there's no age prescribed for the New Testament role of elder or pastor. But you can guess that by this term that they chose for that, elder, they were more likely to be 40-year-olds than 18-year-olds. Because with age, we hope, comes more time for learning, more time for gaining wisdom, more time to, well, mature. And this might be the group that Titus would look most naturally to for those church elders. But elders or not, they all had the same call. Older men would be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. We do need to take some time to look at each one of these, these terms, which is why uh, my notes are particularly long. But there is a lot of overlap, again, between these groups, and so we'll be able to go shorter and shorter as we work our way through the passage. This first term, the sober-minded, uh, the basic sense of the word is sober. And I think that Paul probably is emphasizing not being drunk because he tells Titus a verse later that the older women should not be slaves to much wine. So these ideas kind of parallel each other. Sober is not, by the way, having a blood alcohol content below 0.08. We create laws like that because we are incompetent and partial judges. And we need black and white standards to avoid the need for real justice. Sober is not having your judgment meaningfully diminished by the effects of alcohol or another substance. As Christians, we are called to be in the power of our senses so that we can honor God and be led by His Spirit. And that's true regardless of age. But an older man, especially, should be done with the foolishness of youth. Next, dignify. That word implies seriousness about the person's character and life. They are they're not a joke. They are a serious person. They command respect. They have a purpose. They have goals in this life. And, and no doubt for the Christian, those purposes and those goals are rooted in their gospel calling to Jesus Christ. Self-controlled is the trickiest word on this list, and there really probably isn't a great English equivalent. It might be the most important of the terms in this passage, though. It certainly can mean self-controlled. That's part of the idea. Uh, more on point, though, it, it refers to sort of the clear-headed and thoughtful approach to life that allows a person to be unmoved by the cravings and ups and downs of this world so that they make good decisions. They don't overindulge. They stay the course. They're reliable. It's a bit hard to sum all of that up with one word. 
It's one of those ideas that occurs four times in this passage. And it was a virtue that was praised in Greco-Roman culture. No doubt the Christians had a little bit of a unique spin on the term, but there's a sense that in as much as the culture had this value that overlapped with Christian virtue, well, Christians should especially show themselves to be virtuous in this way because even the non-Christians on Crete would see these self-controlled Christians and recognize them as uniquely virtuous people. Finally, the old men were to be sound. That's a, that word again, sound or health. And in three areas, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. If you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, he routinely holds up three ideas as important for Christians. Faith, hope, and love. Faith or, or, or faithfulness is that quality of trust and reliance on Jesus and his gospel. Love is that commitment to imitating Christ's sacrifice of himself for the sake of others, especially those who don't deserve it. Putting others' priorities and needs ahead of your own. And hope, which is the term he usually uses, and steadfastness, which he uses here, are probably close synonyms. Hope points to a Christian's firm conviction that God will make good on his promises to us in the end. It leads to steadfastness or perseverance through the trials and temptations of life because we know that this world is not our home. And that no matter how bad things seem, this is not the end. God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, who will come again to judge the living and the dead, to create a new heavens and a new earth where death shall be no more, nor mourning, nor crying, nor sorrow shall be any more, for the former things are passing away. Faith, hope, and love are the aspirations of every Christian. But all the more fitting that his life winds down the old man has not lost his faith, but remains steadfast in hope of eternal life. Not embittered by life, but still full of sacrificial love for others. Let's turn to the old women. They're, they're similar. That's why Paul says older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Like I said, there's similarity and differences in each of these groups. And those similarities can be chalked up to the fact that all Christians are called to the same standards of holiness. The differences probably fit into one or two categories. Sometimes Paul mentions something that might be particularly befitting of one specific group. And in other cases, it might be that there are particular problems that that group is prone to either in that culture generally or on Crete specifically. Uh, and so sometimes we can't be certain exactly what he's pointing to, but we have a general idea. He, he begins with reverent in behavior, and, and that's one of those terms that is different. That I get the sense fits into the category of something particularly befitting of women. It, it's not that some Christians don't need to be reverent in behavior. Of course, all Christians need to be reverent in behavior. But there are words we use in English of women that we might not use of men. And it's difficult to communicate that difference to a non-English speaker. We'd probably never say that a bride should be handsome on her wedding day or that a groom should be beautiful on his wedding day. Of course, a groom should be beautiful on his wedding day and a bride should be handsome on her wedding day, but it's just not how we use the word. It's just particularly fitting to say that a groom should be handsome and a bride should be beautiful. And that's how I think Paul is using this term. It's something that could be true of anyone but it, it, the nuance of it probably fit women better. And it goes beyond behavior. It's, it's not just that their actions, it's their attitudes. And it, and it really probably is the counterpart for what Paul says about older men. Grooms are handsome. Old men are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Brides are beautiful. Old women are reverent. But it gets at the same basic idea. They're cautioned not to slander. Now, the Bible prohibits slander for all Christians, so maybe we think perhaps this was a particular problem among the old 
women of Crete. Maybe they were well-known for their loose tongues. We also know that loose tongues often go hand-in-hand with not having enough to do. And in that culture in particular, many old women would have been widows who would be cared for by their younger family members or the Christian community, which gave them more free time and more free time for frivolous endeavors. Gossip and slanders are often the favorite pastimes of the old and unoccupied. All Christians should avoid slander, but we're more susceptible to this when we're not busy with God's work, whether that's because of retirement or injury, a layoff, or some other circumstance of life. And the older women are to stay sober, not be given to too much wine, like we stated with the men. But Paul also has a charge for the older women. They are to train the younger women. And and that's probably the wrong word to use because train sounds very pedantic, doesn't it? Um, uh, As one scholar points out, we we train pets. We don't train people. Um, We train employees. We don't train equals in the same way. The, The word here, though, that gets translated train is actually the verb form of the adjective self-controlled that was just used of the old men. And used as a verb, it probably has this sense of to awaken, to, to bring to one's senses. Or we might say open someone's eyes to something. So instead of being lazy in their old age and their retirement and their widowhood, these old women are supposed to impart the same clear-headed and thoughtful approach to life in these young women that characterized old men. Now, why is this the old women's role? Well, for one thing, we're all called to be busy in God's work. And retirement is not a particularly Christian idea. We might retire from a company, we might retire from a profession, but we do not retire from the hard work of service to God. And old women can continue to serve God well by raising up the next generation of godly women. Culturally and practically, it was probably foolish uh, for Titus to spend a lot of time with single women and other men's wives. Not absolutely prohibited in Scripture, but there can be good reasons for it, but just not a wise, regular pattern. The reality is, is that older women, and let's just say for a moment that any Christian woman who was a touch older than another Christian woman, even in 2023, you have a better opportunity to minister to a younger woman than Zach does, or Rollin does, or, or I do. And I don't think that it's too strong to suggest that that's your unique responsibility. Of course, you have to be the sort of woman who has something to impart, don't you? Sometimes age in spiritual maturity is greater than age in revolutions around the sun. And so I don't think younger women need to see themselves as absolved here. But there's another bigger point, I think, in that. There are places that not everyone can go with the gospel. And maybe, just maybe, because of your unique station and your unique place in life, you are called to uniquely go. Uh, There are few people who are better equipped to bring the gospel to employees at Sherwin-Williams than Ryan or Chris. There are few people better equipped to uh, bring the gospel to adoptees than Cassie or Sully. There are few people better equipped to bring the gospel to uh, Nigerian immigrants and, and expats than Raymond. Of course, Titus could help the younger women, but the circumstances meant that older women would have far more opportunities and far more success with fewer cultural barriers. Who is God calling you to uniquely reach? 
Paul then turns to the young women by way of the old women. And that's interesting because, again, in this culture, uh, this would be women under 40, maybe under 50, being called young. They would have been almost entirely married and almost entirely with children by their early 20s. And so as we start to talk about the young women and then young men, we have some larger cultural leaps to make mentally because that doesn't really match with our reality. The vast majority of 20-somethings are not, like 20-year-olds are not married with children, right? But still, let's, let's dig in. Paul instructs Titus to order his speech in such a way that he helps old women to help young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Those first two uh, love their husbands and children. We might think that's pretty intuitive, right? Of course, of course a young woman's going to love her husband, love her children, but, but take a step back in time. When this was written, marriages were, were commonly arranged. And even if they weren't arranged, uh, marriage may have been more about stability and flourishing and social cohesion than romantic love, which is a very modern idea. And many young women were probably converts to Christianity who had husbands who were unbelievers at that moment. Loving them could not be taken for granted. And about children... Infanticide at the time, as it still remains in many places today, was common, very common. Children with deformities, children who happened to be girls, children that simply displeased their father for some reason. There were different customs and different reasons in different places. They might be just left alone to die outside by thirst, hunger, heat cold. The thinking was that that is not murder. After all, the child might be saved by chance or by the gods or by the kindness of a stranger. So it wasn't killing. And that practice was legal in Rome until the late fourth century. And even after that, it was common. We can go further. We might think it's modern, but it's not. Abortion was known and not uncommon in the ancient world. In fact, the earliest Christian document outside the New Testament, a document known as the Didache, or the teaching, specifically instructs Christians to not engage in abortion. In fact, that document might be older than certain parts of the New Testament. But from the earliest days of Christianity, the killing of children in the womb was recognized as a serious and sadly common problem. So it couldn't be taken for granted that a woman would love her husband and children. Certainly not in the style of Christian teaching. Young women needed to develop this nurturing love from older Christian women because it was not guaranteed to have been learned in their upbringing. Christian homes would be marked by a very different ethic than Cretan homes. Christian homes may be marked by stability and success, maybe, but they were definitely to be marked by true affection. Even today, in a different culture, we may go through seasons where a spouse or a child is not particularly lovable. We might face temptations to show the opposite of love and affection for a spouse. We might be tempted to deal with a child in ways that aren't nurturing. But Christians need to resist those temptations, even in difficult seasons. Even if our spouses will not love us back, or our children will not love us back, we ought to love. Likewise, young women are be self-controlled. Same word again. Youth is not an excuse for living frivolous, unserious, undisciplined lives. 
not for Christians. Pure has hints of faithfulness to one's husband, but also extends out to moral purity in general, being Christ-like in all things. Working at home. Can we get controversial? Uh, I don't think we should understand this to mean that a woman's place is in the home. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that it's inappropriate for them to be doing things outside of the home. But at that time, and still today, to a lesser degree, we understand that women have a unique role in the home that can't be replaced, especially when it comes to things like nursing children. But managing a home is a very difficult endeavor. It does not come easy. And among richer families in the ancient world, they might have owned slaves or had hired workers, and a home could have been much more like a small business. With big or small, rich or poor, it wasn't usually the husband in that culture that ruled the roost, so to speak. He might lead his family. A good Christian husband should lead his family. But the management of the household was often at the woman's direction. I think one of the problems of our modern culture is that we don't appreciate the difficulty of managing a home. And we don't celebrate those who do it well. And maybe as a result, we don't think we have to manage our homes? Or that the management of the home just kind of happens automatically? And it doesn't. Young women on Crete would have likely been married. They would have had children. They would have been in a unique position to manage the household. And to the extent that they held that position, though it wasn't all of them, they should occupy themselves with it, do it well, and glorify God in their work so that other Cretans might say, those Christian women sure run their home with wisdom and with grace. So I don't think Paul is saying something specifically about what women are to be doing, as much as he's saying that in so much as you find yourself in this opportunity, glorify God well with it. Kind is a, is a simple one. It's exactly as it sounds. But, you know, young people are sometimes quick to judge, have harsh takes, jealous streaks that can manifest as something less than kindness. And maybe Cretan women were particularly known for being unkind. But whatever the case, kindness mattered. And finally, submissive to their own husbands. That's fun. Um, I preached a sermon on this idea, this exact idea from the book of Ephesians in October of 2018. So I'm going to skim over this for the sake of time, but if you want more depth, you can find it um, on our podcast or on our website. But, but submission here is voluntary submission. It's expressly coded as voluntary submission in the text. It's not forced submission. It's also not the same thing as obedience. There's a difference. Obedience is a form of submission, but not all submission is obedience. The culture of that time, the text of Scripture, and our own common sense tells us that there has to be some ordering of society. I have a moral obligation in some way, some shape, some form to submit to Joe Biden, to Mike DeWine, to Justin Bibb to the police officer who stops me on the road. Now, that, the, the nature of that submission differs from context to context. And it doesn't mean I always obey them, but I do owe them a certain degree of respect and, and deference. When, when President Trump called for 15 days to slow the spread in, in March of 2020, our church paused our move to this building. Even though we were in another space, we had boxes ready to go to this space to launch service in this space by the next Sunday, and we pressed pause. We weren't forced to obey that. We didn't fully understand what it meant, and maybe not everyone agreed with him. I don't know. I didn't talk to everybody. But it seemed like our government's chief executive was asking the country to come together for the good of all, and it seemed appropriate to give him deference in that. 
In the biblical portrait of the family, there is a mutual submission that occurs between all members of the Christian community, including husbands to wives and wives to husbands. But there's an additional unique sense in which that manifests itself in an honoring deference of the wife toward her husband. It's not something the husband can demand. It's something the wife must give. It doesn't mean obedience. As equals, wives can object to their husbands, especially when he suggests something stupid or evil. But submission does mean at least not reviling the husband in that foolishness. It might mean kind refusal or loving but firm pushback. Sometimes it may mean a wife follows her husband's lead into a difficult and challenging terrain against her preference, especially if it's a godly and loving and kind husband who is earnestly trying to help the family to pursue Christ. That's the biblical portrait of spousal submission in a nutshell. Now, on all of these qualities of young women, note that they are to have these awakened in them by the old women. And so the old women are to have these same qualities too, or they can't do that work. But then there's the young men also, and much of this has already been said because, again, the overlap of ideas, but they too need to be self-controlled. There's that word again. Like the young women, like all Christians. And then Titus is kind of put in the place of the old woman. And what I mean by that is just like the qualities of the young women are really the qualities of the old women passed on to them, imparted to them, so Titus is to be a model for the young men by exhibiting these qualities that they are supposed to have, including good works. Because Christ did a good work in us, we do good works in his name. The gospel, the good news of Christianity is not that we do good works to be right with God. There's not a laundry list of things. If you do this, you do this, you do this, and these are the Christian things to do, and then God approves of you, and you're accepted before God. The Christian message, which I think comports with our wisdom and our understanding, is that there really is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with a God who is infinitely perfect and infinitely holy, whom we have offended and insulted. But what we can't do, Christ did for us. Living as a perfect substitute, he died in our place and he took the punishment for our crimes on himself and then conquered them in his resurrection. So that those who come to him in faith can receive eternal life. We do good works then, not because we're motivated to be right with God, we do good works because we are right with God and we are overflowing with thankfulness for what he has done. That's true of all Christians, but maybe he emphasizes it among the young men because we know how young men might be more likely to work, to spend their energy on things that won't go with them to eternity. Integrity is a new word on our list, but it needs no explanation. It's that quality of being scrupulously honest in all of your dealings. Young men might be a little more known for trying to get what they want by massaging the truth or just avoiding it. Dignity we saw with the old men. Young men become old men, Lord willing, and they should not wait to develop a serious character and life. Sound speech, healthy speech. How can speech be healthy? Well, in one sense, it's just speech that's in line with the gospel. But perhaps one New Testament scholar is right in thinking that the thrust is that words can tear down and destroy, or they can bind up and heal. And Titus' speech, and consequently other young men's speech, should heal. Turn on the news, turn on social media. What a change would that be for young men, young Christian men, 
to use their words to heal. Paul envisions a community of young men in the Christian church that would stand years beyond the wisdom and integrity of the old men of the world. Finally, we come to bond servants, and I'm going to be I'm going to skim here as well for the sake of time uh, because there are some sticky questions here, but I would point you to, uh, I preached on the book of Philemon in the spring of 2018 and the book of Colossians in the spring of 2020. They're all public, and so I get into a little bit more depth about the Christian ethic on slavery there. But here's the reality. There were slaves on Crete. Some of them became Christians, not because their masters forced it on them, but because they heard the good news and chose for themselves to follow Jesus. First century slavery under Rome took a lot of different forms. In some ways, it overlapped with the cruel features of the American chattel slavery system. And in some ways, it overlapped with our modern idea of employment. All of which is to say we can't easily map one category onto it. But I've heard both of those examples used to describe first century slavery. And there's truth in both, but it's not the full picture. It was complex. And that's why the translation we use uh, says bond servants. That is probably the most accurate term. The problem is you don't know what a bond servant is and neither do I. And so the next closest term we have in English is slave. So I'm going to use the term slave because it's closer. But do hear that I think it still has a lot of applications for employees. Now, if you were a slave and you heard the gospel and you believed that Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sins and bought you eternal life, and you received that message with gladness and became a follower of Jesus, how do you now live? You're a slave. How do you conduct your life? As a slave who has been set free by King Jesus. Well, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7 that slaves should get their freedom if at all possible because there's something just not befitting of a person freed by King Jesus being in slavery. But if that's not possible, submissive to your masters and everything. That's the same term that's used of wives, but again, this is a term that takes different significance depending on the context and, and the relationship that's being talked about. Husbands and wives uh, were equals. Masters have an ownership relationship over slaves. And so submission in that context pushes a little bit more toward obedience, but not complete obedience. No slave, no employee should cave to immoral or God-dishonoring commands. In that situation, one should politely, respectfully, and submissively say no. And that might come with persecution. A cruel master might beat a slave. An immoral employer might fire you, cut your hours, treat you awfully because of your stand. But you have to honor your master in heaven before your master on earth. Well-pleasing just means that as much as it's up to you, you are valued and your master is glad to have you as his slave. Your boss is glad to have you as her employee. Does your boss value you? Is she glad that you are her employee? Or do you bring your boss grief? Not argumentative is, is the idea of talking back. Many of us struggle with that when we're under any kind of authority, don't we? We chafe at authority. And sometimes when we don't think we're treated right, we snap. It's especially true when there's a power imbalance. But Christians show humility. 
we know that we don't need our master's approval or our employer's approval. We need God's approval. Not pilfering. Yeah, don't steal. Um, but that can be extra tempting when we're not being paid well, when we're not being treated right, as many employees aren't, as many slaves weren't. But we don't repay evil with evil. Instead, we show all good faith, which means that we are fully reliable in all things. That's a lot. That's five groups with more than 25 characteristics that we needed to get through. But we started with this question, what difference does Christianity make? And there's another question, though. There's another concern, isn't there? Anymore, too often, you know what the world thinks about Christians? It thinks that Christianity makes you a bad person, a worse person, maybe even an evil person. I've heard that. Not everyone thinks that, but it's not uncommon, and it's a growing idea that Christianity is bad and that it makes bad people. Now, part of that is a world that has rejected God and rejected the ethics and values that God has called us to. But let's be honest. Part of that is also a lot of people publicly parading under the name of Christian for whom it really does seem like Christianity has made them worse. Haven't you seen people who profess to be Christians acting in vile ways? Angry, cruel, Lazy, unserious, not at all dignified, but serving as the butt of jokes, often deservedly. Others are frankly immoral, lacking anything like self-control, addicted to alcohol and other drugs, sometimes only being exposed when the spotlight of worldly justice hits them on a bad day. Just open the news. I'm sure there are new stories this morning that weren't there yesterday. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, this should not be so. We cannot seek a good reputation with outsiders by compromising our gospel beliefs or our gospel ethics. That won't do. That would mean pleasing men instead of pleasing God. But when our lived ethics would make the world blush, that is a grievous evil. Now, no doubt many of these so-called Christians are among those whom Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But some of them, maybe some of us, are true followers of Jesus who have given Jesus a bad name for doing what Jesus would never have us do. Look at the end of verse 5. Look at the end of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 10. Why should old men and old women and young women live this way? That the word of God may not be reviled. Why should Titus conduct himself as such a great model for the young men so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us? Why should, should slaves or, or employees have such commendable behavior? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This passage isn't merely concerned with holy living. It, it most certainly is. But it's also concerned with the mission of God. In 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul reminds Timothy that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why would they come to truth if they think that the truth is disgusting or perverted? 
Fortunately for us, the Holy Spirit is stronger than the wickedness of men, or none would be saved. Paul was concerned that non-Christians would revile or speak evil about the Christian message. He was concerned that false teachers would use the failures of Christian leaders to propagate their lies. Instead, he hoped to see the truth about Jesus to be made more beautiful, decorated by the lives of his followers. Too often, the concern isn't what difference does it make, but why would I want to participate in that? We need to be better than that. Not to be accepted by Jesus, but because we've been accepted by Jesus. And he is beautiful. And we want the world to know how beautiful he is. And we need to call out those who use the name of the Lord in vain. Who walk after the patterns of the evil and vile world and yet call themselves Christian. What does that look like? Look at this passage. It's an intensive course of discipleship. It's no doubt led by Titus and the pastors he appoints, but it has to be carried out by each of us, each doing his part as models, as patterns, as encouragements, as edifications. Discipleship is is formal sometimes, like coming here on a Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. And it can be as informal as bumping into somebody at Aldi and thinking to yourself, how can I motivate them to Christ-likeness right now? But whether it's formal or whether it's informal or probably somewhere in between, it's always intentional. It's always intentional. What does intentional discipleship look like in your life right now? I would just, it's been a while since we talked about them. These are on the back table and maybe we need to print some more. If you are not engaged in discipling someone, if no one is engaged in discipling you, building you up in Christ-likeness. Check out these guides in in the back that we put together. These are just helpful guides to uh, help you in any sort of uh, relationship with another Christian or even a non-Christian to help you think through the issues that you might be dealing with in life and to point you to Scripture, God's Word, to uh, free articles and to books that you can use to benefit your soul and push another person or be pushed or to push each other toward Christ-likeness, toward faithfulness in Jesus Christ. That our lived ethics might be something that make Jesus look more beautiful and not something that turns him into a monstrosity of lies. If you are not engaged in that kind of relationship, would you intentionally seek it out this week? Whether to encourage someone else, to be encouraged, or both. And discipleship truly begins before we even become Christians because part of discipleship is becoming a disciple. If there's someone that you're looking at who is not a Christian, or if you're not a Christian and you want to know more about the Christian faith, we have a great study guide that I would recommend called Christianity Explained. I can get to you, and you can walk someone through the fundamentals of what Christianity is about by reading the story of Jesus over just a few short lessons. And you can know for yourself what it's about. And you can accept that or you can reject it, but at least you can say you know. Christians, if that's who you are, we need to live gospel lives. It's what we're called to. It's because of who we follow. 
It's also what we're called to because the mission of God depends on it. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for the ways that we have not followed the pattern of our King and our Master, Jesus Christ. Would you press us as a church into discipleship that leads to holy living, not because we are in guilt trying to reach a standard we can never reach, but because we know that Jesus reached the standard for us and our gratitude pours out, and we want to lift him high. Make us into a place where people know there is something distinctly different there. Make us a people who are willing to say, come and see. Look at my life and see what difference it makes to follow Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's praise that Jesus one more time in song.